Diego. Sounds like a little magic dragon you got going on there. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the Fail to Fail podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. What's going on, everybody? It's another episode of the Fail to Fail podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. And joining us tonight on the phone, you just heard him say he thought that was a little bit of Imagine Dragons, but we don't have that kind of budget around here at the Digital 410 Network. This is a song off of the public domain, no license, free music off the YouTube channel that we're using for our theme song right now. But here's a former colleague of mine in the radio industry. Uh, we'll get into all the other cool stuff he gets into and does as the story progresses because I kind of like this uh, podcast. I like the story and the success of the people on it to come to you naturally. I don't want to give anything away ahead of time. I want you to be surprised of where uh, things go and uh, the success these people have in life. These people meaning the people on our podcast. But joining us right now... He goes by the name of DJ M. Dot. There's a little secret right there for you. But DJ M. Dot, how are you doing, friend? I'm doing well, my friend. Thanks for having me on. I thanks, appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. First and foremost, before we get into you know background of your life and all that good stuff, I know you're over in Miami. What yes. is it like right now with all the COVID-19 stuff going on over there? Uh, it's just about the same as everywhere else. Um, I've been quarantined since about... March 11th, I think that was the last uh, home game I performed at, and uh, just been in the house ever since then for the most part. I haven't really been stepping out except for like the necessities, like going to the grocery store and picking up food and stuff like that. But it's just been uh, everything's been on the standstill for the most part. Yeah, over here in Fort Myers, um, things you know when this thing first started, the roads kind of cleared out, and -hmm. a lot of people buckled down and hid away. Obviously, with me being in the IT world, I didn't have the luxury because I'm the guy who sets up people to work from home, and um, I tried to do most of that remotely, but there were times that I had to go to the customer's office and set things up, and so I didn't, I wasn't able to stay home most of the time, but things right now are kind of, you know, obviously the beaches are starting to open up, but I would say for about maybe three to four weeks, it, it was kind of a little ghost towny, but and then people quickly got over it and started uh, just going out again. So um, right. here, here on this side of the state, it hasn't been super, um, you know, pent up and locked down. What's been interesting over here is that I remember when it, we know when, when we got the news in the NBA that they were canceling the season because of, you know, some of the players contracted the COVID-19. And I remember stuff was still open that weekend, even the, the following week, like stuff was still open. Club, nightclubs were still open and whatnot because it was in some spring break. And I'm sitting here like, wait, this is pretty bad if this multi-billion dollar industry in the NBA mm-hmm. is canceling stuff, but yet nightclubs and all these other things are still open. And I get it, you're a business, so you kind of want to make your money right now during spring break. But still, like I was, I was, it was a little weird that places were still open. So you're ever looking, that, you're ever looking one, that. you're ever looking one key factor there, and that is payroll cost. Uh, when you're a bar owner and you're paying people two dollars an hour plus tips versus multi million dollars a year, you're yeah. uh, less likely to be too concerned about protecting your investment. Whereas when you're a NBA team or even if NFL was going on, they would have done the same thing. But you know, soccer oh, yeah. overseas and baseball and everything else. I think I saw uh, South Korea had their first baseball game last night, and they kind of did the banner thing out in the uh, chairs of people. But they actually, uh-huh. when they had the banners made up, the people actually have their COVID-19 mask on. And so oh, wow. 
but I mean, even visually, I guess on TV, it kind of blends in, but energy wise yeah. and all that, it has to be completely different. But yeah, that's probably why the NBA picked it up first because, you know, they have a hell of a lot more of a bigger investment to worry about as far as employer to employees go versus yeah, a bar and or a restaurant. Got to protect those, uh, got to protect those investments. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> but we'll get into that little momentarily. Now you grew up in Miami, correct? I was born at Daytona Beach, and I grew up in Miami. That is correct. What year were you born, and when did you move to Miami? I moved to Miami. I was born in 80. I moved to Miami. Uh, let's see. We went to Orlando for one year. So I was in the third grade. And then we moved to Miami, like, fourth grade. So, yeah. That was a different, totally different culture shock moving from Daytona Beach, even Orlando at the time, because, you know, Daytona Beach is maybe 45 minutes north of Orlando. So, you know, I'm kind of used to, and I was born in a small town outside of Daytona Beach, which is even, you know, population was like maybe 10,000 people, if that. Sure. So, uh, you know, moving from an environment like that to Miami was, a, my gosh, it was a culture shock. It was like, what in the hell did my mom just do? But I knew that. It was gonna be we were gonna be all right because there were so many possibilities in Miami. Well, you know, the, they were just endless. Well, and the thing too is Miami had kind of a, I want to say a real estate and financial boom. I'd say in the late '90s, early 2000s, where a lot of things started getting, you know, kind of like how New York City did for a while. You know, Times Square was a complete horror show for years, and then you know all the big stores that moved in and kind of cleaned the place up. You know, Miami kind of had a resurgence in the. Um, early 2000s what was it like growing up in miami in the 80s and ni early 90s my gosh it just i mean i remember people were saying that it was for the most part like you grew up in miami wasn't it bad at the time wasn't it like smashing grabs and this and that i was like i never knew anything about that miami was just like any other place for the most part like but i was so engulfed in like playing sports and being in the band that it just seemed like life in the big city like, you know, it was just, it was cool because I had friends of all walks of life. Uh, my, obviously, you know, mine is a melting pot for, you know, different ethnicities and races and cultures and stuff like that. So it was, it was hella fun for me because, you know, moving from a small town and now I meet these people that don't look like me, but kind of look like me. They talk this different language. I'm like, wow, this is what I've been missing growing up in Daytona Beach. Cool. You know? Well, and you know, I you were talking about how you really didn't know of all the craziness that was allegedly going on, and I had a thought, which then transitioned to another thought. So I'll lay the first one down first, especially back then, which transitions to the second thought, which has to do with now, which is sad. But one of the key identifiers of good parents is not letting your kids know how rough you have it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when you go to the grocery store, hey, I want this. We don't have the money. That's one thing. But not sitting around the house and verbally expressing how rough things are or how bad the neighborhood is or, you know, oh, crap, I, I got cut back on hours this week. So now mm -hmm. when the parents have those conversations between themselves, when they have adult talk in the other room, so they, the children just – they're having their childhood. They're living their life. They don't right. know. And that's a that's a great thing just like – I'll give you a quick example. Um, when I tra when my family transitioned, my dad we left Northern Kentucky, which uh, mm -hmm. you know half the family you know we I come from a long line of you know the food stamps, the welfare, and all that stuff. And when my dad moved to Columbus and took a better job, we lived in an area 
which used to be an Air Force base during World War II, but then got transitioned into just civilian housing. It was called Rickenbacker Air Force Base, and the neighborhood was called Steeplechase. So I went from I lived in there from second grade to sixth grade, and then when my dad got a promotion, we moved to Grove City, which is a suburb of Columbus. I tell people it's like Cape Coral, Florida, minus the canals and the, you know, the high high um well back then the high mortgage. But I remember one time we I went with a friend of mine, uh, to in high school to go with his sister to go pick up some, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she's like, I got to go to my guy's neighborhood. And we drive over to the Southwest side of Columbus to Rickenbacker air force base where I lived and grew up from second grade up until sixth grade. And she gets out of the car and says, roll up the windows and lock the doors and walks in the house. And her brother and my other friend in the car, roll up the window, lock the door. And I got the window down. Like, what are you doing? This is a bad neighborhood. I'm like, I grew up here. This is I skateboarded these streets from second grade to sixth grade. This was my neighborhood. I, this ain't a bad neighborhood, at least if it was then. Once again, we didn't know. We were too busy skateboarding, uh, playing guns, going to down to the old military base. My parents sure as hell didn't sit around talking about, boy, this neighborhood sure is a shit show, ain't it? So we didn't know. Right. <laughs> That's funny. That, well, we are. Uh... Continue on. Well, I was just going to say, and that brings me to my second point, which is the modern day stuff is with the advent of social media and Twitter and all that, the, the age of adults have slipped so much as far as maturity level and life levels that people tend to utilize Facebook, Twitter, and all that stuff to complain, to, to vocalize how miserable they are. And I'm sure if they're that vocal about it on Twitter, Facebook, and everywhere else, I'm sure their kids hear it at home too. And that's kind of what right. I, I had that sad realization: like, wow, the things that our parents used to protect us from—that whole, you know, we have an adult talk. Now I think you know, parents, a lot of parents, not all of them, but I think some of the modern day parents feel like, well, I'm, I'm not only a parent, but I'm a friend. So you know, they're we're a family unit. They're we don't have adult talks; they hear everything. No, right. you, they don't need. They need security. They need to know that when they go to bed right. at night. The house is going to be there in the morning. They don't need to know you're two months behind in the mortgage and you're worried about right. your car getting impounded because that's unnecessary right. anxiety for them. You're you're basically inflicting damage to their childhood. Right. I uh, I basically we we grew up lower middle class. Mm-hmm. Um. So and it was just my mom and my older brother. And when we first moved to Miami, we moved. We had to stay with some relatives in Coconut Grove. Now Coconut Grove was a bad area at the time. So uh, I, my older brother went to school, and he was walking home. I believe he was in he was in middle school at the time. So he went to school and was walking home, and he saw some, I guess, some kind of gang activity, in which he almost got involved. And my mom was like, eh, "It's time for us to move somewhere a little bit safer. Somewhere safer just happened to be a way safer area." And uh, yeah, growing up, I remember there were times where. We didn't, I, I didn't, I know we didn't struggle, but there were times, like, my mom didn't openly say we were struggling, but there were times, of course, that you knew that there was something going on for sure. the most part. You know, like, there was three of us living in a one bedroom, you know, and then eating hot dogs a couple of times a week is not really, really good for you. You know what I'm saying? Well, if it's a good week, <laughs> you not... might have pigs in a blanket or fish sticks. Right. Well, well, <laughs> we had that also, you know, but. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, you know, and then not having a, a, you know, a home telephone or coming home every so often and seeing the three-day notice on your door, you know, like that, stuff like that. But, but no matter what was going on, my mom never 
verbally told us, like, like you know, to give the example you're talking about of the difference between parenting back then and parenting now, my mom never sat down and openly told us, hey, you know, this shit is hard out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mama's going to try to make, no, she never just said anything, you know. She, she, uh, we just knew that she was going to make a way because that's what she does. She's a hard worker. She got a, she got a job with the fire department as a fire inspector. Nice, that's a good kicked game. Ass ever since then, so you know, but it was her by herself. Yeah. No child support for two boys. No handout. No, you know, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with food stamps and stuff like that. But she didn't, ha- she didn't take any government assistance. She was just on her own, kicked ass doing stuff. Yeah, we struggled at times. There were some times I couldn't get the Jordans. I actually only got Jordans one time in my life. That's probably why I have 20 of them in my closet now. Which ones were they? The the, um, flat black ones with the, what were the Jordan 3s? Which ones came out like the mid-90s? My my gosh, I loved all of them. No, I mean the one pair you got when you were a kid. The one pair I got when I was a kid was the, let's see, that was in Going into middle school, so that was about what were they? The nines, I believe, somewhere around there could have been. weren't they the sway? Were they the? Because I'm, I never got in the Jordans. I just remember, you know, the kids. No, I'm a little. I'm about ten years older than you, so that one. No, that would have been later my on. My favorite, my favorite pair are the eleven, and I and those were in like those are entering high school, and I couldn't get those. Those were those are way too much. But those are my favorite pair, but I got like five of them pairs now. <laughs> they were a little bit before that when I was like in middle school and I was like, man, I've always wanted to be, I couldn't get that. Uh, there was other times I couldn't get things, you know, but at the end of the day, my mom just made a way. And, and we, even though once you get a little bit older, like once I was in middle school and stuff like that, I was like, okay, well, again, I can kind of see that we don't have all the luxuries of some of my other friends, but I never went to school not having lunch money. Lunch was, Two dollars a day. I always yep. had lunch money. There was always something to eat in the fridge. It's probably why I still eat peanut butter and jelly to this day. That's like my snack at night when I'm like, when I want a midnight snack, I'll go downstairs and make a peanut butter and jelly. You know. But there was always something to eat, and and it just worked out because we knew at the end of the day, no matter what was going on, she was going to 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 provide and make a way. And we bounced around a little bit. You know, this this place was a little bit cheaper in rent but we went over here or this place was a little bit cheaper in rent but for the most part i had a pretty chill childhood you know i often tell people when they complain about the no child left behind thing and how it makes schooling hard it's like yeah but you know i kind of get it because every bad policy through the government starts with good intentions and i was held Mm -hmm. back in first grade because my parents got divorced at the time and my mom was finding her way in the world and so she moved to different Mm -hmm. school districts a lot and back then they didn't have no child left behind and basically all that says is that every school district at a certain time of the curriculum is teaching certain a a particular uh subject and here's why because when my mom got divorced and i went to like three different first grade classes they were all teaching different stuff so i never got the fundamentals and so I ended up getting held back, whereas hypothetically, if they would have had the, the concept of no child left behind, meaning that no matter what school you went to at, during that month, they're, well, they may be a chapter or two off, but they're all teaching the same curriculum. And that's kind of the whole purpose right. of it. If you keep the politics and the funding out of it, that was the basis for it. And if they would have had that sort of thing back then, because, you know, bouncing around, you know, I would have wouldn't have graduated a year late uh just for the people screaming at their uh radios and listening to the podcast i was referring to because this is how old i was um i wonder how many of my friends if they would have known that their jordan sixes 
would have sold for $4,523 in the 2020 back when their mom bought them and we were in study hall popping the air pockets with our pencils. <laughs> but they would have oh thought, gosh. oh, you would, have, you would have a meltdown if you had seen some of the abuse. I've seen the original Jordans undertake in my middle school days. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. My buddy Nick, I remember to this day, he would, he would take a pencil and just pop the air pocket just so we can hear the gas leak out of it. Wow. Yeah, we, we, I've seen major Jordan abuses. Wow, on their own pair of sneakers, yeah. not like, not like their front. Like, let, let me just be an asshole and go and pop your air bubble on, you know, Timmy sneakers on their own sneakers. No, because he, now remember, I said I I grew up in Hamilton South, and then I moved to the nicer, the Cape Coral side of town. So these were the rich kids uh, that they were getting their shoes. Okay, this yeah. wasn't when I was living on the Southwest side. This is when I lived in the south, the uh, suburb of Columbus, and what. When I lived in Rickenbacker, we referred to Grove City as the rich town. Ironically, when I moved to Grove City, their rich town was Hilliard or up Arlington. So, you know, the hatred always goes up to the next um, class level. But, yeah, no, it was the quote-unquote rich kids in Grove City whose parents were buying them Jordans that are popping them. No, the kids in Hamilton South wouldn't have because their mom would have had to save up two years to buy the damn things. Basically. Basically. And so you grew up in Miami. And, uh, yeah. You uh, graduated high school and you went off to college. What yeah. what what uh, well what college did you, I, well, I know but for the sake of the audience what college did you go to? I went to Miami Dade. Nice. I went to Miami Dade, and uh, because I have a music background, uh, I was able to enroll in the band of the hour at the University of Miami. And uh, they did that because University of Miami is a private school, mm-hmm. and uh, in order to compete with the likes of Florida State and these other colleges they needed local kids who were still enrolled in college throughout Miami to be able to enroll in their marching band courses so they can perform at games and be a part of the marching band. So it's not like to avoid, you know, playing the Seminoles and the Seminoles show up and they have 450 kids in their band and then you play UM who only has 60 because those kids, only 60 of them go to the University of Miami. Yeah. So uh, that was a cool program. So I went to Dave, but I was also in the band of University of Miami and uh, was in music. What was your instrument of choice? Were you on the drum line? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So did you Especially start that in high school or did you, uh, did you get introduced in the snare drum in middle school? Because usually they, they kind of get you started early. They give you the snare drum and the sanity saver for you to go home and beat on. Did it start in middle school for you or high school? So I happened in middle school, I was in the symphonic band playing snare drum. And then uh, when I went to high school, and but also when I was in middle school, I was in jazz band as well. So I was one of the one of the craziest things is I was one of the top drummers in the county. Nice. Yeah, for both for symphonic band and jazz band, you know. So you know, we always got the top of the ratings and whatnot, even individual ratings. So uh, yeah, I was I was playing a lot of. I was in the drum set, but then when the, when I went to high school, I I just got fascinated by marching band and i grew up playing pop warner football mm-hmm. as well as uh basketball but you know pop warner football was my i was i was a stud and i was just a small stud so going into high school like I, you know the coaches the coach knew about me and he's like you're gonna come and play for me i'm like nah, i think i'm gonna pick up this basketball instead but i like the idea of the friday night lights I sure. like the cheerleaders. I like the, you know, the football game. So I went to the marching band and never touched the drum set all through high school because I was just focused on 
a marching band and that snare drum. And I played snare drum for three and a half years in marching band. And then that went on to college and played for another three years. Now, I know 10 years later in high school, 10 years from when, you know, like I said, I'm, little, I'm 41, I'm a little older than you. Um, I know things have changed socially, but back when I was in school, like when I, when I started middle school, I wanted to play snare drum, but they were all taken, so I got the trombone. And I struggled with that until high school, and I just quit. My brother played trumpet. Uh, the Grove City Marching Band, um, they went, they played like the Rose Bowl like three times. They, they were real good back in the 90s. But anyhow, um, oh, I, I lost my thought. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the marching band kind of had a stigma to it. At least when I was in high school, middle school, we were all kind of considered nerdy. And here you are, you know, you're, a, 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 like you said, a stud in, in the athletic world. But you decide, God, I want to I wanna do marching band. How did that transition? How, was, how did your friends, the athlete and your crew, how did they look at that? Did they give you shit for it? Or my, they like, okay, cool, do your thing. Some of my friends were like, yo, you know, you really like going to play? But the cool thing about it is that I picked up a basketball, so they knew that I was going to continue with the athletic side of me. Yeah. I just wasn't going to play. I wasn't going to play football because I was 100 and something pounds going into high school soaking wet. <laughs> You're not about to put me on that field with some monsters and get me crushed, you know? So, yeah, if, but, you but if you don't got that speed, you're not going to be the running back, so... Well, no, I definitely didn't want to be running back because I played running back in Pop Warner, and that's that's no fun. I remember my first year playing Pop Warner football, I played running back, and we played some of these. And I was in, again, I'm in a lower middle class, middle class area, and we played some of these, some of these brothers from these, you know, underprivileged areas. And I remember taking a half sweep, went out there on the on the on the pitch. Somebody lit me up. I was like, yeah, I ain't going to play this position again. Well, that's because they got two things going for them. One, they live on a rougher side of town, and so they're used to, you know, taking a little ass whooping in the street and giving an ass whooping and walking away and used to the pain. And two, uh, they're working a hell of a lot harder to try to, uh, you know, get that scholarship so they can go to college. And so they got a lot more to work for, and they're used to, you know, taking the hits. And so you're like, oh, fuck this. This ain't worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't. I couldn't take that. But again, you know, going to high school, like my friends knew my love for music, so they were cool with it. And then, yeah, you do have that kind of stigma, like you know, there's one time in band camp, band's kind of nerdy, but people that play drums are always cool. That's yeah. the ones to get all the girls. That's yeah. hella cool. Yeah. And I'm the section leader, meaning I'm the captain. I'm right there in the middle of this entire drum line, setting everything off. So I was just, they were like, you know, I was well accepted. People, people, you know. And all my athlete friends that, that plays football, they understood because they knew they knew my love for music was there. It was always athletic and music, and they and they go hand in hand. And looking back in hindsight, look at look how I am now. You know, both it's athletics and music. <laughs> well, and that's the great thing is, especially with what you're doing now and the way that music has changed. Um, one, it being so digital, but two, even country now has a baseline. You know, heavy hip hop influences. And if you want to produce hip-hop-based music or even house music, it's all about timing. And who knows better than how to, to manage time and to direct music than a goddamn drummer because that's your job. It is. It's your Drummer's job to keep player. everybody in time. Drummer and the bass player. Yeah, I play a crappy <laughs> bass. Uh, my daughter was playing an upright bass last year. She's in sixth grade. Uh, I was so jealous. I've always wanted to play an upright bass, and I went to one of her recitals, and she's she's playing – and so, I obviously the the music continued into your college career. When did you get into the making and uh, the digital aspect of DJing? So, uh, when I was in college, uh, Miami Dade has a North Campus and a, and a and a South Campus. 
Um, basically, I was still in, I was in school, taking my prereqs and stuff like that, about to get into what am I going to do with my life? It's about time to start thinking about courses that uh, where, where I'm going to go in my life. Up until that, up until the, I made that decision, I was leaning towards law enforcement. You know, like that's what my mom obviously worked for the fire department. But when we lived in Daytona Beach, she was a, uh, a phone operator. For she was like, what are they called? People that pick up the nine one one calls. A uh, uh, dispatcher. Dispatcher. That's a dispatcher. hard gig. I mean, you got to listen. You're answering a phone call for people at their most desperate hour, and that's got to weigh down on your your psyche. You know, a little psyche, bit for sure. For sure, and like, and, and in her hours, they were like overnight. So I stayed with my grandparents, maybe five miles, probably about ten miles down the road. My mom lived more, so in Daytona, I was in Holly Hill, which is a small town. So I lived with my grandparents, and I only go to my mom's house for the weekend because her schedule was insane because she was working for the police department. Mm-hmm. So again, up until uh, you know, I but those benefits though, courses, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Up until uh, I decided to take these courses, I was leaning more towards law enforcement, you know, because that's what I wanted to do. Um, I grew up, again, playing in, you know, Pop Warner League, also the Police Athletic League. That was my basketball league when I was in the, I believe it was the eighth grade or seventh grade with the Police Athletic League, you know, a bunch of uh, police officers coach kids in basketball. You go around different and play different precincts stations and whatnot they all have their own thing so i've been around police officers for a long time yeah you know and going to their house after the games and stuff like that and seeing them you know yeah this is my coach this is also a police officer but he's a hella cool guy you know well see so you learned I, at I an early was, you learned at an early age that cops are just like other people some are cool some are dicks oh, for sure for sure and when you when Where, you interact with the dick don't assume that everybody's like that just Right. Realize you're interacting with a right. dick, just like the dick at the Starbucks no. who had a bad day, or the guy at McDonald's. I mean, they're all just normal people. So sometimes they have a bad day, and sometimes they're just dicks. And sometimes they're cool. Almost oh, definitely, almost oh, definitely. And I had some pretty cool. Again, growing up in a single parent household, I had some pretty cool, like pretty dope male influences that you know worked for the police department. I remember two years. I played pop one football three years. Two of the years, my mom couldn't afford it anymore. The yeah. first year, she somehow managed to get the money the second two years couldn't afford anymore but because i was a stud my coaches paid for me now these are cops now they paid for me and whatnot so again fast forwarding back into college um just trying to figure out what i'm gonna do with my life and then uh i actually i went to a a party with a friend of mine who was he's been my friend ever since middle school he went to high school he was the big dj in high school we went to a party um you know, it's just probably like my senior year. So, man, actually, it was after. It was after my. It was my first year of college. Went to a party. He's DJing, um, and the party was moving and whatnot. But I, you know, I, we wanted to get the party a little bit to another level. So they gave me the microphone because I guess I was missing personality. So I get on the microphone, you know, just start rocking it out a little bit, and I'm like, holy cow! I'm actually people are responding to me. Whatever I'm saying, my DJ friend was basically gassing me up saying, yo, you're actually pretty good at this. And then it kind of got into my head and I was like, you know what? I may be actually decent at this. So that's when I decided to take communication courses at that date. Uh, my South had the radio station. So I was taking radio classes in South. Dade North had the television classes. So I was taking the television classes up North. And uh, basically one thing led to another. Got an internship at a radio station. I was like, this is it. This is, this is where I'm going to be. 
this is what I want to do, music in general, and it just kind of took off from there. Now, you started DJing music at a certain point, right? Yes. After, uh, so again, that same guy, I started working with him. Oh, I get, yep. That, that DJ a little bit more. Uh, we were doing maybe two, three clubs a week. I was the official host in the scene of Miami for parties for like 18 plus parties. Like I was going to basically every big event as a guy on the microphone, you know, while all these other guys DJs. Cause at the time, really no one kind of did both. You either DJed and then you had some kind of host, but the people that were hosting were kind of like the radio personality. Yeah, you're more emceeing, you're the master of ceremony. But I, yeah, but I wasn't on the radio. Sure. And I was still getting a lot of love, getting booked everywhere because people just liked me and I rocked the mic pretty well. So, um, well, and I also, assume this, I also assume this was back when the DJ was still turning analog records and turntables, right? Yes. And right. I, and that no, was no, a well, well, well it's maybe transitioning right around that period. I'm sure a lot of them are still hauling around records there, right? Yeah, you still you still had records. You were there were no computers. Yeah, and, and that's records. that's what I was kind of getting to is, and okay. that's probably part of the reason why you didn't have people doing both because of the barrier to entry financially to the DJ scene was you know you had to buy two great turntables. And then there wasn't downloading tracks off of iTunes at 99 cents and putting it on a flash drive. You had to go out and find records. You had to listen to yep. records. You had to find yep. the beat. You had to put your orange sticker on the one on the left, the one green on the yep. one on the right. And how do I know this? Because I lived with a DJ points. for two years. And yeah, yeah the, the drop points. And my, my roommate actually showed me, well, what we do is we find that beat on the one on the left and we put that little yep. dot there. And then that's when you use the fader. And people don't realize, they just think DJs are scratching. No, the skill of a DJ is they can turn that record how many times, and when they flip that fader back, that record will start at an exact note at an exact time on an exact beat and sync up exactly perfectly with another record produced by a different artist in a different year. And it's all about timing, once again, going back to the timing thing, keeping rhythm, timing, and knowing how to use that fader. But once again, when you've yeah. got to lug around four or five milk crates full of vinyl plus two turntables, and chances are, if it's a bar or anywhere else, you've got your own PA system, your own monitor speakers, your own subs and everything. Yeah. And so you're so invested in that craft that to go and do the other side of it, that's all more equipment and just that takes away your focus of what you got to do to get your DJ and stuff done. And I think Almost that's definitely. probably why you didn't see too many people crossing over doing both. Right. Most definitely. And then, you know, again, I started to get some notoriety and uh, the notoriety kind of fell off at the time because this was when it, when you started to see a little bit more of the transition of people who were doing both, mm -hmm. you know, and then there was no, there was no longer a demand to hire, you know, DJ about the DJ and D train to be on the microphone. Yeah. You know, give an example. So that was what I was like, okay, well, I'm invested in this. I'm not on radio yet, but I still want to stay in this business. So the next best thing for me to do is to teach. I've been around DJs for the last some odd years. So I need to learn how to DJ. That way I can continue on in this business and have longevity because I already speak really well on the microphone. Mm -hmm. We have that part covered. Now let me learn the techniques of DJ and then let's see where it takes me. And that's exactly what I did, man. Um, you know, hang, again, hanging around DJs, teach me this, teach me that. The transition was easier for me than, than the normal person because I have a musical background. So I can count 
measures. I can count bars. I can count beats per minute, you know? I understand one and two and three and four and mix. Like, I understood that. You know, the, the scratching just, that, the, the techniques of it, the techniques, the technical part of it, I should say, I learned later on, but, you know, the blending and, and music selection and stuff like that, I kind of had that because I know this song matches up with this song. Mm-hmm. That song matches up with that song. I can count. I can stay on beat. So this is kind of, you know, and... Um, I had a history teacher, um, not a history, yeah, history teacher in my junior year, uh, which mm-hmm. would have been 1996, and he was a former DJ. And you could list any song from the 80s and early 90s, and he could tell you what the beats per minute were on it, how long it was, when the uh, music faded in, when it faded out, and what song it best uh, faded into. <laughs> I mean, he had the whole yeah. thing down. You could just name any song, and he would just ramble it off like Rayman. Oh, Whitney Houston, blah, blah, blah. That's this beats per minute. It really goes well into this. You know, He just knew it all. It was, it was insane. Oh, yeah, he had that. He got that. Yeah, basically. And, yeah. That's, that's how it started. And then uh, one thing led to another. And I knew there was no turning back from that moment. And then, you know, I had a few big breaks and it was gone. But even during this time, I had a regular job. B. I was working at a law firm. I was mm-hmm. a law clerk. I was a, not even a law clerk. That's, that's a fancy description of it. I was a runner. I was a, hey, we need 16 copies of this. Go knock that out for us. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, we need this and this not just drop this off at the courthouse. That's what I did because at that time I was living by myself and needed to pay for rent, had that little extra income by working as an MC in the clubs, but still was working at this law firm. That was my bread and butter. I wasn't going to leave that until I knew for certain that I was going to make it in this industry and making $10 an hour wasn't a lot, but it was enough just to get by. Like I didn't have a car, uh, barely had food in the house. If I was dating you, guess what? You were my girlfriend and my mother because you came over and helped me clean. Plus, yep. you helped buy food to put in this place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And then, uh, yeah, I, I continued that on, got an internship, met some people, and I took off after that for the most part. But starting off uh, DJing at first, people didn't take me seriously because they just knew me as DMC. They're like, wait, you're DJing now? Wait, you you DJ for real? Like for real, for real? Yeah. Not knowing my musical background or whatnot. So those first couple gigs, B, I was out there. Hey man, just let me work for free, but I just want to show you, dog. Just let me, hey, just let me rock. Let me rock. You'll see how it is. Let me open up for this. I don't care. Well, let me rock here. Let me do this. You know, and you gotta pay me fifty bucks. That's cool. As an MC, I was making about one fifty to two hundred just to MC, but. I had to take that hit just so I can prove to my, just so I can prove to the promoters and stuff that I can DJ as well, you know? And then once they saw that, they kind of had a little faith in me and they're like, okay, well, I can DJ and talk on the microphone. So I started to get a little bit out there and started uh, gaining some attention from some people and just rocked. Do you ever think maybe one, we're kind of lucky we grew up when we did. Um, and two, and the reason I'm saying that this, these two things go together, and the second thing being that, um, do you think the being around the law enforcement when you're growing up really taught you how to one listen and learn from other people? Because it sounds to me like when it came to learning the DJ, like you said, you were MCing for so long, or you know, doing all the talking, and now you want to get into the DJ side, and here you've been around so many people for so long that clearly you acted as a sponge. 
You basically mm-hmm. learned by watching other people, just like apprenticeship programs have been for centuries. And then obviously, you know, getting in the radio, you have to shut up and listen. And right. being a law clerk or a, a, a go-getter, like you said, hey, we need these copies. And all those are things that you have to shut up, listen, and do what you're told. Whereas I think maybe if you were doing some of those things – being from this modern generation where these young cats don't like to be told what to do uh, because they don't see it as them doing a job. They see it as you basically insulting them saying they don't, that you know more than they do. And so they take offense to everything now. Uh And I wonder if your outcome would have been a little bit different if we were born closer to now and we had that horrible attitude that a lot of the younger cats have, because I was the same way. Um, when I lived in California and I was working for an IT firm, not an IT firm, but a, a um, web hosting company where the guy was open for three years and he was making, after his third year, he was making 80 grand a month take home after payroll and taxes. I mean, he was swimming in cash. Oh my and he told me something that changed my life. And I've used uh, many times with talking to other people. And that is he's, you know, cause I would go talk to him and he would have a reply and I would ever talk to him. And he finally said, you know, what your biggest problem is I'm like, what's that? He's like, you don't listen to the conversation to digest it and contribute to the conversation. You're just waiting for me to stop talking. So you can already say what you have in your head. You're not listening to the conversation. You're just waiting to talk instead of actually listening, processing and contributing. And that was a life changer for me. Oh man, that's, that's struck you to your core right there, bro. And I, and (laughs) I've known a lot of people since then too, who do the same thing. And you know where that's really helped me out doing what we're doing right now. Interviews. Yeah. I yeah. I have another podcast called the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast where I interview World War II vets if I'm lucky if they're around, right? Interview authors, um, directors, producers, other living historians. And with the exception of the authors and and the producers, these guys don't have an IMDb IMDb or a WikiLeaks page, right? I can't sit here and spend twenty minutes getting their background. I'm just told, hey, here's my grandfather. He's 93. He served in Europe in the Army in 1944. Okay. And so that forces me to ask him an opening question, listen to their reply, and base my next question off of that reply. Off of their reply. Yep. Where I find a lot of the journalists, the professional journalism, um, because I've actually had people say, um, hey, can you send me your questions you're going to ask? And even on this Fail to Fail podcast or my other one, it's like, well, I I don't have questions. When I go to these interviews, I don't have questions because, one, I think it turns into a better interview if I don't have questions. Because if I have a list of questions, while you're answering question one, I'm reading question two, waiting to ask and you. Not yeah. And it becomes a very boring, stilted interview. Right. Very structured interview. And those are boring. <laughs> yeah. Just like right now, I, I, I'm, I make notes as we go. And, and that's about it. I think, uh, to your point, I think it would be a lot different if if I had grown up, for example, like now as opposed to back then. Because I, I think a lot of these kids are privileged for the most part, and um, they don't appreciate the art of listening to people before responding. Like you said, they may always have something in response to say without, in regards to not even listening to them. I, it would have been a lot different. And then... I, luckily for me, like, I don't know who instilled that in me. Maybe it was my grandfather. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was him because I, I was, I, again, I was like a sponge. Like you said, man, I soak everything up, anything and everything. Any, any, any person willing to invest 
a little time in me, I was I was right there and I was all for it. You know, whether it was the police officers growing up, whether it was, you know, teachers or coaches. I think it was football, to be honest was, with you. And you and you kind of had, you know, a lot of people say, you know, fo- you know, I never played football, but just hearing other people who who've interviewed and talked about, it, they say football so regimented, it's almost like a mini military. Well, in your case, you have a football coach who's also who a police officer, which is exactly what that is, which is usually police officers are retired military guys, and it's a mini military, so you're getting it double dipped. And I'm sure, I'm sure, getting yelled at by the coach and. And realizing that your job, you have a job on that team, and if you don't perform your job, the whole team suffers. And all those years you played Pop Warner and listened to those coach and getting the importance of a team player instilled in you, it made it so much easier for you to listen and be part of the team when you're doing the the, the clerk stuff at the courts and when you're DJing and all that stuff. It all it all probably came from that. Oh, most definitely. I think that the best compliment someone's ever given me was uh, Jamie's old manager, and he sat me down. We were talking about something. I can't remember what it was. Jamie Fox, I should say. I shouldn't just say Jamie. I know we're doing the podcast. <laughs> I apologize, but I hate the name drop. That's all right. Uh, but uh, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, we were sitting down, and we were talking about something I can't remember verbatim. But uh, we were, uh, he was like, you know, and to be honest with you, like I've been in this industry forever. You know, uh, I've, seen, I've seen people come and go. And what separates you from a lot of people that I've seen is that you're generally a good person. And I was like, damn. He's like, listen, everybody has fucking talent. I'm not, I, am I supposed to say that? I'm sorry. No, you can cuss. I've already, I've already said fuck like cool. twice. So, yeah. All right, cool. He was yeah. like, listen, everybody got fucking talent. Just like that. I remember yep. him saying, I was like, you know what? You actually, I, never, I never viewed it like that. You're absolutely right. Everybody does have some kind of talent. Now, what separates you from the next person is who you are as a person. That may shine through a lot brighter than your overall talent. Because, yeah, you have talent, but if you're a good person, that may take you to a next level. And I was like, you know what? And I thought, and I, and I thought about it later on that day. Like, maybe I'm getting all these opportunities because, yes, I have talent, but I'm genuinely a good person. Now, who instilled that in me? My grandparents, my mother. These uh these coaches that I had in my life, these teachers, the you know this 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 uh, father figure that worked at the law firm that I still talk to to this day. I, when I see the guy, he's he's a he's uh, he's a Miami Heat season ticket holder. I still give him a hug and a kiss on his cheek. A grown man, I give him a kiss. I'm a grown man as well. But this is how influential that guy was to me, you know. So maybe it was all these people that instilled this in me, and maybe this is the reason why I am who I am today because. I didn't grow up privileged or anything like that. Not in a bad way, but I just understood what it took to get to a level where I need to be at. And I listened. And and it's the reason now where I don't want to be in a group where I'm the smartest person in that group. There's no purpose for me. That's, what can I learn from hanging out with a bunch of people and I'm just the smartest exactly. and most successful in that group? I don't want to do that shit. No, I want to hang around people who are a lot more successful and smarter than me. That way I can soak up more stuff because – I may be at a standstill right now. I need to learn how to get somewhere. I, I need to learn how to get to a different level. So let me surround myself by, you know, with you smarter and, and more successful people. And I've been rocking like that ever since, man. You know, one of the terms I kind of coined is if you hang out with turds, you're going to get shit on. And it's the same thing. Why do you want to be the best person in your group? You want to be, you know, hang, you know, in mid-level in a better group. Right. 
you want to be around more right. successful people. Going back to California when I worked for the web hosting company, uh, one guy was 40, the other guy was 27. They're both making 80 grand a month. You do the math. I literally got up and went to work and sat in the same room with two millionaires every day. You don't think I shut up and soaked up everything I could about running a business from these two guys? By the right. way, one of them was an ex-biker on his third strike, so if he got arrested for anything, he was going to get life in prison. And so here's a guy who completely turned around his life. He went from being a biker to being a millionaire running a legitimate business. And how he got into the web hosting is he he actually ran um, EverQuest servers. He was a big EverQuest guy back in the day. And so he started out running EverQuest servers and then transitioning to, uh, to web hosting servers. But anyhow, uh, so uh, what... You graduated college because we're going to move this along a little bit. We're already 46 minutes into this, which is fine. I love long, long form interviews, but I know you probably got stuff to do. Where was your first radio gig at? So you, you, you graduated college and you took communications and got into the music stuff and you went on to go into radio. Where was your first radio job? First of all, I didn't even graduate, man. I just left early. I said, fuck uh, it. First radio job wasn't until I went and got the job at B, actually, because uh, I had an internship at a station. And that internship led me to have, I was, I was working at the station, but as an intern, and then I filled in a couple of times on the air and my career basically took off after that because I, I was hit with my first tour, maybe a year after that. And after the first tour, I was just, I was gone. I was, I didn't really have time for radio, even though radio was my first love. Um, so I didn't get, I didn't get on the radio until when I was over there. And what year was that? About 2015, I believe it was. Yeah, you worked there, what, four or five years? I worked there five years. Yeah, because you, that, uh, you left shortly after me, I did. That's how long it took me to circle back to radio, and I thank God for that because my career was – my first tour was with Brooke Hogan, and I went on the road with her in 2000 and – what was that? Gosh, late 2000s. Yeah, and then right after the right after the tour with her, I immediately jumped on the the, the tour with Jamie Foxx. How did you pick up her? Were you doing the Miami? Because we haven't got into it yet, but you're the official DJ for the uh, Miami Heat. Were you DJing there before you got in the radio? I was. I lived in Miami. Yeah. How did yeah, you get I lived the in gig Miami that entire time? So my mentor, who is uh, another DJ for the Miami Heat, he's the the one that started it off, the first guy to DJ in sports. Period. Uh, his name is DJ Ivy. He's my mentor. So he um, he basically started with the Heat. Uh, still there to this day. Uh, he and I go back and forth and do the games and stuff like that. Um, basically, he's just the man in Miami. He knew Brooke Hogan's management company. Brooke, she had a CD out at the time. A single, I'm sorry. She had a single out at the time that was taken all over radio. Because that's radio. back when they had their yeah. show, right? This was yes, yes, exactly. So she was. I mean, it was it their was whole family. This was this is before her brother's accident. This is before her yep. father's sex tape before scandal. Before the divorce. Yeah, this is before the divorce. This they had a show on VH1. They were right and high at the time. Oh my gosh, they were. This why it was a win-win situation. She came out with a single. She has this rapper that's on the single. The single's doing extremely well. We do a promo tour now. This is all. This is like a jingle ball promo tour because it was all iHeart stations. So it was like a jingle ball in Fort Lauderdale, and then you have one in New Rochelle, New York, and you have one in Manhattan, and you have one in Philadelphia, that type of thing. The tour was about, and at the time, again, I'm at the law firm. So the tour was about a month and a half. 
but but before we went on the tour, you know, we were rehearsing a little bit because I got introduced through my mentor. And uh, yeah, went on that tour. It was myself, Brooke. She had four dancers from California, but the only people from Miami were Brooke, myself, and her dad. So I'm on the road with Hulk Hogan, who's my freaking childhood <laughs> Absolutely. idol. I was a big wrestling fan. That was what connected me and my grandfather was wrestling. So I'm on the tour. I'm on the road with, by the time my grandfather passed away. But I'm I'm like, what the hell is going on? It's crazy how life works. I'm on the road with my childhood idol, okay, <laughs> working with his daughter, which is hella cool. Our tour manager was Jimmy Hart, the mouth of the stop. That was crazy. <laughs> so he, yeah. so Terry Terry held up and, and took care of his people when his daughter's sure career took off by bringing Jimmy Hart along. That's awesome. Yeah, all Jimmy would have to do was just make sure our hotels were cool, make sure the sound check was cool, make sure the venue was cool, shit like that. It was the best thing ever. Best thing ever. Um, so, we, you know, we go, on this, we go on this tour. Everything's cool, you know, get some exposure. Um, at that time, I just took a leave of absence at the, at the law firm because I was like, well, I'm going to go on this road for a month and a half, make X, Y, and Z, but I don't think that's enough to quit yet. Like, I'm not stupid. Yeah. I was still so, like, I was still depending on my bread and butter. So I'm like, okay, well, cool. They, they you know, they said my job is going to be there when I come back. But um, luckily for me, I never went back because after that tour finished, I think it was December 14th, I got a call for Jamie to go over to Cali to start his tour. Now, my mentor, he met Jamie in Miami, so I got that connect from him. Now, this was at the time where the Heat were going into the 2006 season because they, were, they won the championship that year, 2006-2007. So they won the championship year year. We couldn't split the tour. So I ended up doing the entire Jamie tour that entire year in 2007 and just never went back to the law firm because one tour led to another. And now by that time I came back on both those tours, I'm like, there's no way. Like I, I say this is model, not like as modest as possible, but, there, but there's no way I'm going back and filing papers. There's yeah. no way. I knew, no I knew, I, I didn't know about the Brooke Hogan thing. I knew about the Jamie Foxx thing, but you were still on tour with him three years ago. I didn't realize you had been his DJ for that long. It's been, it, it's going on my, it'll be 14 years in, in the, in December. How many does he like tour once every two years? How often do you guys actually go out on tour? We did we did two major tours, four to five months, and then a bunch of spot dates. You know, there, there's been times where we're going a three week tour. There's been a spot dates where it'd be, hey, we got these two shows in New York, and it's just been a bunch of spot dates to this day. And 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 <laughs> you know? you're going back to the part earlier where you're saying Jamie's ex manager told you, you know, you're a great guy, and the reason that's so important and the entertainment industry, especially like when it comes to if you end up um, doing like a video shoot, depending on what you're doing, obviously, if you're acting or whatever, there's a lot of times there's a lot of long days. And if you are not fun to be around, people aren't going to want you on their project because they got enough to worry about. For example, a tour. If you're a dick, no one's going to want to be riding on the tour bus with you and hanging out in hotels with you for four months. Heck, heck no. And that tour bus, man, that's, 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 that's a whole different life. Imagine spending, you know, four or five months on a tour bus with eight to 12 bunks. Like, this is, this is your family. So you better be a cool-ass person. If not, it's going to be a rough tour for you. 
<laughs> now imagine doing that with no cell phones, no laptops, no technology, but, a, uh, you know, that's why rock stars in the 70s and even 80s and 90s got hooked on drugs because there's nothing that's to do. They, exactly. That's exactly why they were high. <laughs> there's nothing. There, there was no cell phones. There's no tablets. There's no – you. In the 90s, I know for sure that the big thing to do was get on the bus and watch DVD box sets of the kids in the hall. <laughs> That's all they did oh, funny. from town to town. Funny. That's funny. Yeah, my bunk, you know, I had the flat screen. Obviously, had my laptop, had my cell phone. So it was pretty cool. Then they had the PlayStation and stuff going on. But to be honest with you, like, that's, that's for the most part the best part of touring is being on the bus, hanging out with the guys, talking shit. You know, I remember the first tour what we did, what I did with Jamie, I sat up next to the driver for most of it because I hadn't been out of Florida. I went to New York one time, actually twice, to visit a really good friend of mine. She lived in New Rochelle, New York. I went to visit her twice, and that was the only time I had really been out of Florida. I actually went to Georgia once for a band competition, but that was it. I'd never been anywhere else. So imagine... This, you know, kid from a small town, even though I lived in Miami, you know, and was raised in Miami, I'm on this tour. I sat up next to the driver the majority of the tour during, during the day because I wanted to see mountains and all kinds of shit. I wanted to go through and, and just experience life. Because Fucking was, Utah. Was all you got to say is Utah. Utah is goddamn beautiful. Arizona is beautiful. I had there the, I had the um, benefit of driving in 1998. I often tell people I'm the last generation who had the ability to drive across country before GPS was invented. So I drove from Ohio to California with a roadmap, and then wow. from California to Kentucky, and then in Ohio, then in 2001 I moved from Ohio to Long Beach, California. So I made that drive again, and then when we moved to Fort Myers, I drove from Long Beach, California to Fort Myers. That's a long goddamn drive, and but though, wow. and I tell people all the time because you know. I'm sure you've heard this too, especially growing up in Miami. Oh, the, every time they tear down a little uh, plot of land, woods and put up houses, oh, they're getting rid of all our, our woods and all that. It's like if you've driven across the country, you know there's more middle of nowhere out there than there is developed cities. It's insane how exactly. much nothing there is once you get outside the, the towns. Exactly. Uh, so, not yeah, to get I, too inside I, baseball here, but obviously, if you're a bass player and you're going for a band, you, you're playing. You know, you're a studio musician or you're a touring musician. They give you some sheet music. You play the notes. You keep the time and you you participate. When it comes to DJing, background music, is there more artistic licensing for you to do what you want, or do they hand you samples? How does that work? What while being on tour? Well, I mean, when like. Brooke Hogan calls you up, says, hey, I want you to go on tour. Here's our songs. Once again, if you're a guitar player, you play these notes. Your keyboard, you play these notes. When it comes to actually DJing, how does that work as far as the the music-wise? Do they give you the tracks? Do you contribute? Do you make suggestions? Is it more freestyle on your side? How does, how does so, that work? So Brooke's performance, we basically played off an IR machine, instant replay machine. Uh, and uh, it was more so of being... A hype man. Gotcha. That's what it was. Didn't play not one of her tracks. <laughs> Didn't play. Everything came off the IR machine that I pressed play on. All right, track number one is this song. Track number two is this song. Track number three is this song. Track number four is this song. That's exactly what it was. But it was just me on stage with her, with her hyping her up, being more so a hype man. With Jamie, same thing. We got a full band up there. Yeah. So there, there were DJ parts in the show that I had, but everything else was 
just basically I, I had an open microphone because I am this hype man. So when you you go on the road, you hear Jamie's voice really loud, and you heard my voice right under Jamie is a is a is a is He's a, a fucking renaissance man. He's a renaissance man, is what he is. Yeah, yeah. There's just I I I often tell people that we all have some kind of talent, D. And we, we, yeah, we all have some kind of God-given talent, but you're not supposed to be that talented in everything. That's just, I don't know what arrangement you have with God for you to be able to do everything. He's got a fucking monopoly on talent. We yeah, should hit him with an just, antitrust lawsuit. <laughs> this shit is not fair. Like how the, how in the, cause you that talented in everything you do. But then some people are just like that, man. And I look at him to this day, and I'm like, this shit is not fair, man. But, um, yeah, with him, you know, we had the live band, and it was just – I was up there like a hype man as well, with the exception of my DJ part. You know, and, I you know, I didn't learn of your affiliation with him until later on after knowing you. You, you don't know this at all. I didn't even make you aware of this, but I gained respect for you – for this simple reason, I, pro- you know, obviously I was working on a different station. I was producing a talk show cause that's my format. Don't get me wrong. I love music, but, um, as I've gotten older, my, you know, I just into talk radio and to me sitting there as a music, d- uh, radio station DJ, where you're playing the tracks that the program director tells you to play You're you play four in a row. You're told to only talk for 30 seconds, go to commercial break, do the lead ins and all that. To me, that just seems very monotonous. And um, I remember I came back one night. It was either it was after a, a remote, and I was driving the van for K Rock, doing a remote. And it was late. It may have been after Fort Rock, one of those late late shows, one of those late concerts. And I was the only one there. I bring the van, and I was putting the keys in because you know, at the radio station we put the van keys on top of the on air lights because that's super secure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember I heard yeah. this clapping and this woo. And it's clapping, and it's the whole building's goddamn dark. Every studio lights are off. All the stations are on autoplay, and I'm just hearing this clapping and this hooping. And I walk down the hall and I look in the B one of three studios. You're not on the air. You're playing music, but you are there clapping. You're in the fucking studio dancing, enjoying every goddamn note, every sound, everything that was going out on the air. And you weren't just in there collecting a check, waiting for the next song to pass by. To me, I was like, this guy, that's a guy who fucking loves music even to this day. The fact that you're in a studio dancing as if you're on stage in front of 16,000 people, but you're in a building completely by yourself, not even on the air, not even talking to listeners. You're just in there tearing it up. I was like, that's a guy who loves fucking music, and he's definitely not here for a paycheck because there isn't one. He's here for the love of radio and the love of music, and that's when the night I gained respect for you. I appreciate that, man. And that's, that's what it boils down to. I, I think it's my love for music. And like you mentioned, uh, we're not there. I wasn't there for a paycheck because the paycheck, there wasn't a paycheck there compared to all my other gigs that I had at the time. There's just, I, it was just my first love. You know, I've always wanted to do radio. And fortunately for me, my career path, you know, my career just took a different path. And I wasn't able to backtrack to, you know, to be able to fulfill that radio my radio passion because I, it just took off from there. And, you know, and once I got the opportunity when I was over there at B, you know, I was like, because I lived over there. I was over in uh, Southwest Florida for maybe 
two, three years before I even got the gig at B. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I moved over there after, you know, doing my, um, I, I was the, I got the gig with the Florida Marlins. They, they were, this was before they were the Miami Marlins. This was like the last year or something. They were the Florida Marlins. And, um, I was, I was familiar with the area because they would bring me back and forth because they, you know, some of the clubs over there heard about me over here through my management company, Swamp Club and Maple Cross Suede. They would bring me over once every other month or something like that, you know, to come and rock. And I was like, this is a really nice area. I'm kind of looking for a change. It's quiet. It reminds me of home, 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 mm-hmm. as they told the beach, you know, and it's not too far where I can just get on the alley and go back and forth. So I made the transition. Now I was over there for a good two years, three years. You know, before I even thought about doing radio until I got a call to uh, to actually be the DJ for one of B1039's concerts that they were throwing. This is the Flow Rider concert. Now, I, I knew everyone from the station because I, I was fortunate enough to work at the best clubs in Naples and Fort Myers because of my name. Mm-hmm. So... You know, and and the best clubs. You know, you know the radio stations want to be affiliated with the best clubs because yeah. it makes them look good. Even, they may not bring a damn soul, but you know what? If they're at a club that's busy as hell, and their banners are out front, them, <laughs> makes them look great. Yeah. So I was I was cool with everybody at the station. They didn't know my background, and you know that I went to school for that, and that I was that I wanted to do that or anything like that because the conversations were just like, "Hey, man, how you doing? Everything good?" Cool, man. So you doing your thing. X, Y, and Z. Cool. Appreciate the love, man. I'm going to shout you guys out. You shout me out, whatever it is. And then, uh, yeah, like I said, I got the call just to be the DJ at that thing, at that concert. And after that, that led to another conversation. And they were like, I was like, hey, man, uh, you know, I actually wanted to do this. This is what I went to school for. I just didn't have an opportunity to do it. And luckily for me, there was an opening at the time. I originally, to be honest with you, I, I, I originally went in for a weekend gig because I wasn't sure if I could commit Monday through Friday. Yeah. My career, I was still, I was still doing the heat, uh, still traveling, X, y, you know, every so often with Jamie um, and just some other club gigs and stuff like that. So I was like, eh, you know, let me just go in and see if I can go in for a weekend gig. And, you know, uh, they basically offered me the full-time position, not being paid full-time, but still, they offered me the Monday through Friday gig. And I was like, man, this is the best thing ever. And I've always been a person that that likes to have his hands in, in everything, and, mm-hmm. and I get that from Jamie. That's that's one thing that I get from him. And even though I'm not as great as he is at doing everything that he does, I I get that. Like I got that from being around a person like that. You need to have your hands in everything. Number one, it's going to build your brand. Number two, it's longevity. You know, you want to be on every platform. You want to be. You want to do this. You want to do that. So, you know, I was able to do the radio do the touring thing still you know do clubs still do private events and still be with you know a professional basketball team and and my life was chaotic but i loved every minute of it because it kept me super busy and i'm I'm a person that's just i'm driven i'm way too driven to a point where it's a curse and like it's a blessing and a curse well cool it's it thrills. I'm. I'm so happy that the both of us had the opportunity to work in radio when we did. But it saddens me because I think radio has kind of gotten to the point of no return. Um, yeah. I don't think it's ever going to be like it ever was. Right. Um, there's so. I mean, and somewhat rightfully so. But the first, you know, because you and I worked there briefly. You know, I might have worked a, a year longer than you. 
But, um, you know, when we first started working there, it was kind of the old way. And then as so much importance landed on social media where we're sitting in fucking phone conferences on how to best utilize Facebook algorithms and it, it got less about, you know, radio, more about social media. And then the fact that, you know, you're on the air trying to provide content, but now you're competing with all the other sources out there, whether, whether it's the streaming services or this, that, and the other thing. It's just, and then it just, it, I don't know, it got to the point where I just finally ended up leaving. And it was crazy. I, I left because I, I felt it was time, but I've often told people now that the universe was telling me it was time because three weeks to the day, I actually put in a two-month notice. So I trained mm-hmm. my replacement. And three weeks to the day of my last day there, my stepmom, who worked in my family business, passed away. And because part of me leaving radio was I wanted to focus on a family business so that my dad and my stepmom could start semi-retiring and spend less time working and spend more time enjoying their retirement. And literally three weeks to the day I left radio, she died. And so I, at that point now, I'm not only fixing computers, but I'm now doing bookkeeping. I'm dealing with billing. I'm doing processing. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was just so weird. It's like one way, one way or the other, my radio days were over. And I loved every minute of it. And I think one of the biggest things that came to me from working in radio, I already knew how to edit sound. Um, I actually, back in 1999, when I got fired from the ambulance plant, I sat home and was making techno beats on my compact Passario with a 1.2 gigahertz processor and using an old program called Fruity Loops, Fruity Loops, which was a six-track beat program. I mean, I've been editing. I know Fruity Loops. I heard of that. I've been editing uh, sound and music and all that for years. Obviously, they taught me how to use Audition. but And I lived out in California before I ever worked in radio. And one of the things I learned in California, and we kind of touched on it earlier, and that is celebrities are normal people. They just have cooler jobs than we do. But but working in radio, and, you know, when you have, you know, Sean Wayans and, and, and Sinbad and, you know, all these people and all these bands and all that, it double enforces that, hey, they're just like normal people. And so when you're off into other environments, uh, for example, um, last year, and they just finally released the date um, this fall on the Smithsonian network and Disney plus, it will be the new uh, television series, the right stuff based off of the movie from the eighties. And they filmed it in Orlando. And I know they filmed it in Orlando because I am in two episodes. I did some background acting work. Oh shit. Nice. I'm a Navy captain in the um, pilot episode. And then I am a NASA employee on the, I think episode five when it's new year's Eve. And uh, that was actually a two-day shoot. And getting back to... Yeah, I'm, I'm in two episodes. I'm actually a paid background actor now. I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I've done two of those shows, and I got offered to do some Disney shows, but then COVID-19 kind of killed that for me. But anyhow, going back to what we were saying about you know having talent's one thing, but being a dick will run that for you. If you're a back, oh, yeah. if you're on a background actor on a TV show set for twelve hours and you have an ego or you think you're better than everybody, you're not going to get called back for another episode. Oh, for sure. I remember and word, and word tries fast amongst that, uh, amongst that. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember you the pilot episode we filmed at a golf course in Orlando, in this uh, country club, and it looks like an old 1950s place. And they put me in the opening scene. I'm basically over the left shoulder of one of the principal actors. And so on the pilot episode, I'll probably be a little blurry because of depth of field, but I'll be prominently in that scene. But I remember we went to break, and this one actor flew up here from – he flew up to Orlando from like Key West or something. 
And as a background actor, I think you get paid one hundred twenty-five dollars a day, which comes down to ten bucks an hour for twelve hours. And he, I remember him going to the uh, set director and saying, "Hey, man, I flew up here. You need to do something with me. Meaning, give me a, give me some f- screen time or whatever." I'm thinking, "Yeah, you won't be back because now you you're." Won't. And furthermore, mm-hmm. you knew how much the pay was. Why would you book? You know, why would you throw that in their face? They didn't tell you to fly up here. That was your own choice. Right. You you made the choice to purchase a plane ticket for a, a gig making one hundred twenty five dollars for the day, right? And and it was crazy because the director came in, and well, actually he was the second AD because the primary director was out shooting the main scenes, and um he 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 was an English guy, and in between recording he came around, I was introducing to people and and this and that and kind of being nice to the background workers. Because on a movie set and a TV show set, background workers are kind of like the second-class citizens. We can't eat in the same room with the principal actors, even the key grips or any of the film guys. So you're kind of segregated. But the director's come around, and he's introduced himself. And he looked at me, and I'm in this Navy uniform. He's like, did you serve? I was like, no, I'm a living, histor- I'm a living historian, a World War II reenactor. He's like, oh, what? I was like, yeah, this is what I do on the weekends. I go out to museums and Air Force bases and wherever they'll have us, and I'm wearing authentic World War II gear, and I talk, I educate people about the history of World War II. He's like, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that was a thing. I want to learn more. I'll come back later. And I just thought he was being nice to me, whatever. Two hours later, the director tracks me down and starts asking me more about my hobby, and so I'm showing him pictures and this and that. And kind of like what you said with Jamie Foxx's manager, he said, you know what? I like you. I want to have you back. And I ended up doing two more shoots with him because wow. one, because I worked in radio and I, and I know how to act, act like you're supposed to be there. Don't be a fanboy, Even if you are right, they, they want to work with professionals. They don't want to work with a fanboy. And in being radio, right. you know how annoying fanboys as as much as important it is to have fans when somebody's so overwhelming, overbearing that you realize they're just there because they think this is a big thing. They start doing crazy things, and they they put off a negative energy, and it affects everybody around them. And so that's what you don't want to do in those situations. And that's probably one of the biggest things working radio did for me, especially doing the Fort Rocks and all that, where we're sitting back behind stage with all these bands going up on stage Mm -hmm. in front of 16,000 people. And the crazy thing is, I know you you can definitely know this feeling. I tell people, this is completely different, but for example, when I got into a reenactment, I have a friend who owns five Sherman tanks and they shoot really loud blanks. And when you're doing a reenactment, it's basically a play, right? You're told where to go. You have a scenario. You're shooting real guns, but with blank weapons, you have tanks shooting over your shoulders that the muzzle blast can cause you internal damage if they're too close. But when you're in that mode, you're in work mode. And so when the thing is over, you don't even remember it. And I'm sure being up on a stage or being on, you know, on the stage on Saturday Night Live like you were, when the show was over, you probably don't even realize or really remembered it because you were in work mode, not, hey, I'm cool up on the stage mode, right? That happens to me just about every performance. I, uh, I, I forget about it, maybe not, not, yeah, maybe not after, immediately after. But uh, well, I don't mean forget about it. I guess what I mean is you're you're in work mode that you're focusing on your task that you don't really take oh, in. Yeah. You may take in for two seconds, but you're not there for a full hour just looking around the crowd oh, saying, no. "Wow, this is cool." No. I'm up on stage with Jamie Foxx, or I'm on Saturday Night Live. You're in work mode doing your thing, and so afterwards oh, yeah. you're like, out. "I I'm, don't even remember doing that because I was in work mode." Yeah, I'm I'm literally zoned out. 
Uh, I may take it in, like you said, maybe a couple minutes before, like, hey, I'm actually here. And then once you get on stage, it's like a, hey, you got you to gotta be prepared. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm literally in, uh, in a different zone because I know I got to perform. And I know I got to be at the best of my ability in order to perform. So there's no time to, to really take it in at the time. So, yeah, I get exactly what you're saying on that. Because you work in an industry where it is all about performance. I mean, there is no, hey, I'm going to human resources and filing a complaint because you fired me or I'm going to sue you for unemployment. No, everything is about you, your performance, and your ability to get a job done. And that's why most performers, actors, comedians, musicians, the one thing they all have in common is a motor and the desire to outwork everybody else because that's the only way you get successful. Yep. And one more thing I want to touch on, uh, go back. The importance of being willing to work for free. You were saying if you weren't an intern at a radio station, your career would have never have gone the path that it is. Yeah. If you weren't willing to work for free, because there's a lot of people who won't, regardless of what, how low the, the possible pay could be, oh, you're not going to pay me $9 an hour, I'm not going to do it. But you don't. You're not. Right. You don't see the big picture down the road. And, and those are, and those would be the people that are just stuck in whatever realm that they're in. They're, they'll be stuck in whatever world that they're in because they they aren't willing to think outside the box. And now I'm not saying if you have obviously there's you know if you have a family you have to support and stuff like that. Do what you got to do to support your family. But and that's what I did. Like I I still had to work with my day job, even though I wasn't making money, but I still found the time to make sure I went to my internship a couple of days a week that I, my unpaid internship, you know? Exactly. And, and like you said, people aren't willing to do that nowadays, but I, I don't see why not. Because like, again, like you mentioned, if it weren't for that, I, I wouldn't be who I am today. And but, I wouldn't have this drive and work ethic that I have now. And, and, you know, and this, humidity and stuff like that because yeah i I was able to work for free and i'm the same way i wouldn't not that i'm at the level of success for you are but i wouldn't have been able to do the cool shit that i've done um if i weren't you know a lot of people don't know this i worked in the background for stan and haney before i was even on payroll at beasley's before i even stepped in the door of that place for four and a half years, I hosted their website and managed their Facebook page. Never even stepped foot in the oh, building. Wow. That's how I got the gig. Um, you know, basically, I was a listener, and I remember one years ago, God, back in, anyhow, close to 10 years now, Stan was complaining about his computer, and I'm a computer guy. And, you know, being working on radio, you get a lot of fans who, oh, I can help you out. The last thing you want to do is have a stranger in your house if they're a fan of yours. Because... <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I called him up. Said I, I sent him an email. Said, "Hey, I, I know you're having computer problems. I can fix your computer. Not only can I fix it, I can do it without coming to your house. I can remote in." And so here is, oh, here's somebody said they can fix my computer, and I don't have to bring it to them. They don't have to come to my house, and I can watch what they're doing, so I don't have to, you know, worry about my information getting stolen. And after I did that, Haney called me, same thing. And then they called me one day asking, hey, do you know anything about websites? Sure do. I've been, you know, I worked at a web hosting company. I've been hosting my own website since 2004. So I did their website. And then um, when Haney's 
girlfriend got tired of doing the Facebook drama. They asked me if I could manage her Facebook page. And then when their producer wanted to move on, they said, hey, we can't think of anybody else who knows our show because they would, I would be listening to their show and they'd talk about a subject or a sign or something going around town. And I would drive over there in between jobs, take a photo of it and send it to them or send them. I would send them bumpers and, and drops and stuff. And I knew the show inside and out. And so that's, and you know, there was a lot of people at the station who were pissed that they hired from the outside. And, but that's how I ended up getting the gig is because I essentially worked for them for free for like five years. Yep. You worked for it. You literally deserved it. You earned it for the moment. You definitely earned it. You and then, and then, you know, the, the feeling you get from talking into a microphone or putting out an art, um, that's what led me to doing podcast. And, Plus, with my love of living history in World War II, I started the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, and that led me into, long story short, just not to belabor it, but to kind of get to, you know, once again, the cool shit that I've gotten to do because of radio. Um, long story short, word got to me, I found a small independent film called um, Walking Point was being filmed in Texas. I asked, I sent them a message, asked them if they'd do a phone interview. They asked me where I was at, Florida. Hey, we're actually filming on Boquilia. Do you know where that is? Well, that's 45 minutes from my house. So I went out there. Um, that turned into, well, can you come out to the casting house or do we got to do it on the phone? So that was okay. Now I'm going to be doing a podcast in a house with all these actors and the directors of an independent film on World War II to, hey, why don't you come sit down and have dinner? Long story short, I developed such a relationship with them that I ended up getting – flown out to texas to do a podcast from the national museum of the pacific war because of that movie um oh, wow sadly covid19 has shut down all the independent film and uh fairs or festivals but this movie walking point has started getting all these awards um and all these independent film festivals before covid19 shut it down and they finally just put it out on um hulu not hulu uh vimeo they finally put it out on vimeo and you watch this 30-minute short film, and there's my name, not only my name, Don Abernathy, but also the name of my podcast, and this World War II independent short film that's winning all these awards. And it's all because of what we talked about. One, heart, drive, desire to get things done. Two, yeah. acting like you're supposed to be there. When I was on the movie set all day, if I was being, you know, oh, film me, or, you know, just being a pain in the ass, that would have been the end of the relationship. But a year and a half later, when they came to orlando to do the dog show for the the um the kennel club of america because walking point is about war dogs and a doverman they asked me to come up so i ended up doing another episode you know it's so long story short act like you're supposed to be there don't be annoying and have a motor and drive i mean this is my fourth podcast this week and wow. I, i'm not getting paid for this stuff not yet anyhow, but because I have a love for it, just like you have a love for radio and the fact that you're driving from Miami to Southwest Florida, putting miles on your car, burning down gas and not even making enough money to pay for the miles or the gas. You did it because you love it. Yeah. And it all leads to better was, things. Uh, yeah. I, I literally, that was my first love in entertainment. And, and it's, uh, if my career had taken a different path in terms of if I can just be on the radio I would be okay with that because that's how much I loved radio. Let's say I never started DJing and never met the connects. I, you know, never went on the road with artists that I've gone with or never had any of the, you know, the sports organizations that I've worked for. If, if it would just end that, 
guy's been on radio for X, Y, and Z amount of years. That's cool. That would have been okay with me because that was my first love in the entertainment, and I would have been totally fine with it. And I think that's a great that's point right. to go out on. It's been 121 minutes. We could go all night long, but um, you know, our listeners, I don't know if they would listen all night long. So, DJ Dot, where can people find you on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, where have you? Do you have a YouTube channel? You want to give out your plugs? Uh, at DJM dot is the easiest thing to find me on Instagram. You can see all the cool shit I do. And, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll talk again, man. I appreciate you having me on. I have real quick. Um, I know COVID-19 has really knocked out your schedule and all that, but have you done any of these like, um, live stream type things where people are like entertaining their fans that way? Not yet. That's coming. Uh, it's coming up. I'm, I'm planning a pretty big one. So I got to make sure that, uh, I got all my, 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 you know, eyes dotted and my T's crossed and all that stuff. Well, once again, I can log in your computer remotely. So you having problems getting your Zoom set up or anything like that, man. Give me a call. I'll log in. I'll help you out because I'm doing all this out of my house, man. So I got the studio oh, side yeah. and I can help you out. DJM Dot, thank you so much for all your time. Thank you so much for your inspiration, tell, and your hard work and your positive attitude. And once again, congratulations on the two-year-old daughter. I'm thrilled to hear about that. It's been a little over two years since I've seen you. And I'm... Uh, Considered a pleasure to call you a friend, and I continue. I wish you continued success in all you do. Thanks, B. I appreciate you, man. Thank you a lot. It means a lot. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>